Heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here without Derek because I graciously allowed him the day off. But I'm very excited to be joined today by John Gray. John is an emeritus professor of European thought at the London School of Economics and a writer. And he's also the author of the recent book, The New Leviathans Thoughts After Liberalism. John, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you, Danny, for having me. Uh, so, John, before we get into the content of your book, I, I, I'm an intellectual historian, so this is going to be a selfish question. But I'd like you <laughs> to situate yourself historically. Where, where do you where do you find yourself coming from? What political philosophical traditions do you attach yourself to? And 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 really anything that you'd like to get into in terms of your biography, um, so that I and listeners by default can better understand where you come from and where this book comes from. Well, like you, Danny, I think of myself, at least in part, as an intellectual historian, a historian of ideas. That's what I studied when I was uh, an undergraduate uh, and then a doctoral student in Oxford. And one of the big influences on my um, uh, intellectual development was Isaiah Berlin, who fused liberal political philosophy with the history of ideas. And in particular, had an interest in... um, the byways of thought, an interest in finding um, uh, truth or insight into the human world in surprising places, which for him as a, a liberal uh, included what are often called counter-enlightenment thinkers, thinkers who rejected the enlightenment, um, had strong criticisms of it, but from whom uh, Berlin thought we could learn truths that would be otherwise not easily available within the liberal tradition or the Enlightenment tradition itself. So I would situate myself um, uh, in that um, uh, predominantly liberal tradition, which is looked outside of liberalism for both critiques and ways to support at least certain fundamental uh, uh, liberal ideals and values. So although I call the book Thoughts After Liberalism, and I do think what might be loosely described as a liberal civilization, a society uh, held together by liberal practices and norms has passed into history. As you'll see in the book, I um, think that Thomas Hobbes was in many ways, or at least in some important ways, a liberal thinker. I thought there are some important... John, may I I just ask a quick question? How do you relate to Isaiah Berlin's Cold War liberalism? Um, so yeah. I'm actually writing a volume on Cold War liberalism now. So <laughs> I'm deep in Berlin. Um, so uh, I, I'm curious about how you relate to to that element of his philosophy. Probably one of the um, the worst elements of his philosophy in terms of yeah. how it aids this sort of political philosophical approach. And, and for people who don't know, Berlin and John, I'd love to hear if you disagree with this. Is oftentimes. Mm-hmm characterized my understanding accurately about being a non-systematic thinker. He never developed a big system of philosophy. He approached it in a more problem-oriented way. Mm -hmm. And I think it's impossible to disinvest him from the Cold War era in which he really rose to significant prominence. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious how you relate to his Cold War liberalism, because to some degree, I think the the uh, the historical moment that your book reacts to is really the moment of Cold War liberalism's apotheosis, that after the end of the Cold War, a particular type of Cold War liberalism is mm. able to flourish, particularly after the 9-11 attacks. So I'd just love to hear you a little bit on that before we get to the book itself. Well, I guess I could put it slightly assertively and say, on the one hand, I deny that he was primarily a, a post-Cold War liberal. And on the other hand, to the extent that he was, I endorsed it and still do. Uh, so <laughs> I could put it in those two ways. Um, I'll, I'll Say the first. I'll discuss the first um, to, to begin with. Um, um, I think his thought has more relevance now, paradoxically, than it did in the Cold War, beca- uh, because he took um, fundamental um, divergences of values in the human world to be ineradicable and unalterable. So he he himself would never have expected and, and didn't expect, and I knew him till his death, which came after the end of the Cold War in, uh, I knew for the last um, 
25 years of his life. And he died in, if my memory serves, 1997. So he'd seen some of the post-Cold War period. He never assumed that there would be any convergence on um, liberal principles or values. He didn't ever think it was even remotely likely that that would happen. So to associate himself, I mean, in that sense, Fukuyama is the opposite, dialectical or diametrical opposite of Berlin, as well as coming from different Hegelian and other traditions that Berlin had no time for. So um, um, he, he, I think, took the, the end of the Cold War the way I did, which is to say that it, the Cold War, though uh, I was an active anti-communist in it, I don't regret a single moment of that. Um, and he was too. Um, I was from the 1970s onwards uh, till the end. Um, um, I uh, uh, um, uh, um, thought that, and he thought too, that once the Soviet experiment was over, once the Soviet type of uh, state socialism or whatever it was had collapsed, what would happen would be the reemergence of all kinds of conflicts, ethnic, religious, um, resource conflicts, and other conflicts that had been suppressed in the Soviet Union and elsewhere. They would all reemerge, nationalist conflicts and so forth, fundamentalist conflicts, they all did. And what I also thought um, was, and I'm not, I, was that the um, strength that Western, the liberal West, as it was commonly called, had gained from having this opponent, an opponent which was also rooted in European Enlightenment thinking like liberalism. I mean, it was a quarrel between two liberal ideologies, an internal uh, European or Enlightenment quarrel, that the strength that liberal, the liberal West had gained from that would be dissipated once that enemy was removed. And that's also what happened. Um, so I don't see any contradiction at all or any, even any much of a tension between my thinking from um, the late 80s onwards, which is when I first started writing about the, um, about 87, 88, about the um, uh, weaknesses of uh, Western liberalism as a universalist project. And what I wrote after the Cold War, starting in October 1989, when I wrote my first piece against Fukuyama before his book came out, but after his article had come out in the fall of that year, the end of history, question mark. I see no tension uh, between that at all. That's, uh, and, and my Berlinian value pluralism, that's not to say that I in Berlin agreed on everything because um, um, uh, he was much more of a, a liberal humanist than I am. And, and, a, and, a, and a humanist in the broad sense of um, thinking that human beings are a unique locus of value in the world and that um, uh, uh, having a, a profound interest in, in, the, in the human world, almost to the exclusion of um, the rest of uh, um, uh, the world and the, the natural world uh, in which humans, 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 humans live. So we, we by no means agreed on everything and we differed on even some very fundamental points. I guess the, the deepest point we disagreed on was that he thought there could be a, even though he didn't expect a universal liberal society or the universal triumph of liberalism, he thought that there could be a, a, an argument for um, uh, liberalism as he understood it from um, value pluralism. In other words, he thought that if you were a value pluralist as he, as he was, then uh, liberalism had some kind of priority over all other political um, moralities. I don't think that, as you probably know from my work, I don't accept that uh, derivation, never accepted it. We, he and I discussed it many, many times. We never reached agreement. But we weren't looking for agreement because I guess one of the differences between then and now is there wasn't uh, on either of our sides uh, um, the idea, although we were seeking truth, we didn't want to um, somehow argumentatively coerce the other into agreement, whereas now any deviation from some kind of narrow Progressive orthodoxy is regarded as treason uh, uh, um, or heresy. I'm not, sure, I'm not sure I agree with that last point. I mean, I think I, I, I mean I have the experience in the American Academy, um, and and I would say that the American Academy <laughs> is quite centrist, if anything, um, and, and not particularly progressive. That's what's right, but, but, but that that well, uh, whether you call it centrist, I mean, they're both boring positions and uninteresting positions <laughs> for me, and I don't like any position to be. Um, Oh, let me give you, let me give you, a, when I first went into the academic life in Britain in the early 1970s, 
it was an accepted fact of academic life that everyone thought would continue forever if it didn't, and that everyone thought was normal. That there were Marxists, there were anarchists, there were uh, various types of communists, Trotskyists, Stalinists, conservatives, reactionary conservatives, liberal conservatives, social democrats, practically every position. There were no Nazis, I'm happy to say, but apart from that, there were practically every position on the ideological spectrum was represented and taught in something like complete freedom and toleration in British academic life in the early 1970s. That's categorically not the truth today. And it's not true in America either, because until the early 90s and later on and on subsequently, I, I knew American academic life quite well, and it was much more ideologically and intellectually repressive then than it had been in the 70s or than British academic life had been in the 70s, incomparably more so. That's a function of corporatization and ultimately neoliberal capitalism. What do you attribute mm. it to? Uh, well, uh, I, um, partly that, but uh, also to the just the, the more or less um, systematic squeezing out of political alternatives. Um, 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 Caused in, by neoliberalism and capitalism. <laughs> no, that's much, that's much too simple. I think far too simple. Uh, also, so what, do you, what do you attribute it to then? Um, it's a, it's a whole variety of complex reasons. No, of course, of course. I mean, it's always a whole variety of complex yeah. things. Uh, to some degree, that's always true. But if one is trying to make a causal hierarchical argument, what do you think are the major causes of that decline? I'm very I think they clear. differ a bit from country to country. So, for example, Western Europe and even more Eastern Europe, both of which I uh, have known quite well, especially Eastern Europe, are completely different from the United States or from Britain. Oh, yeah, ab- in the, absolutely. Uh, because, yeah. uh, because, 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 uh, but Western Europe too. So you can't make a generalization about, uh, for example, in Western Europe now, in France and Germany, there are not only strong far-right political parties, there are intellectuals who are also far-right, which which is hardly, I mean, if you want a far-right intellectuals in America or Britain, you have to go outside universities to pop media or social media or something like that. There are plenty of of such intellectuals in uh, France and Germany today and other other West European uh, uh, countries, as there always have been. Now, I don't necessarily see that as a benign form of diversity, but it is a form of intellectual diversity. It's less true in Britain. What uh, and Britain and America are very, very, very different in many respects. I should say. I'd say that one of the reasons in America that this has happened is that American life, uh, intellectual life, and I speak. So I was at Harvard. I was at Yale. I knew a lot of the people on the fringes of American um, intellectual life, political life and intellectual life, wrote for magazines, worked at think tanks and so on. Uh, what I noticed from day one, which for me was about 1973, and it was how ideologically polarized American intellectual life was. So living in New York for seven years, for six months of each, two months of each year, I was the only person who had dinner with people who were liberals and non-liberals, the only one in the entire city that I ever came across. And to me, that was A, surprising and B, horrifying. So Britain is, um, uh, because in Britain, for example, during the Thatcherite experiment, which I was an active Thatcherite, I retained close friendships with socialist intellectuals. Not only had dinner with them, but also attended some of their meetings, they attended some of ours. So Britain has always been different. It's it's become more like America, unfortunately, in the last, um, it's adopted various ideologies, which, uh, uh, have come from uh, America and are may fit American conditions, but certainly not British or European conditions. So, uh, but, so, they've why? Got, so, so, so story. why? So, well, why? I guess you'd have to ask the earlier question, which is why uh, in America, if you talk about America, why did the liberal uh, version of the liberal project become hegemonic in um, universities? Because that that is what happened. Not just hegemonic; it squeezed practically everything else out. Apart from a few religious, explaining what you mean by the liberal project specifically here. No, you can't say it in a few words because it had many different versions. But let me give an example of what I thought was a a peculiarly American political project, a liberal project, the project of turning liberalism into a system of rights or liberties or equalities, which would then be legally arbitrated. Now that's. American, it's not British because Mill never did that. Mill would surely be regarded as a canonical liberal thinker by practically anybody, including Mill, including me. And uh, he was working in a different into a political tradition, constitutional tradition, in which Parliament was sovereign, in which the world was not fettered by any 
Supreme Court. We now have something called the Supreme Court, unfortunately, in my opinion, brought in by Tony Blair one afternoon when he had nothing better to do. Uh, um, but it's actually still subordinate to Parliament. Uh, right this moment in Britain, there's, uh, the, the, the uh, Supreme Court has brought, put out a judgment which, which the present government, whether or not it does it or not, I don't know, because it's a very weak government. But the present government wants to overturn it in Parliament and nullify the judgment in Parliament substantially or completely. Couldn't happen in the United States. So, so the idea of summing up, as it were, liberalism as a set of principles, which are then interpreted, is a liberal project. It's one liberal project, but it's not the British liberal project. And the British liberal project, what in Mills say, was not the a European political project, which in America was often associated with it. Is Republican ideals in 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 in, uh, in Europe. So there isn't just there isn't just just one, but some versions, a family or a range of versions of these projects, all of which are, I think, could be recognised as liberal projects. No one would describe Mill as an anti-liberal, uh, although there were elements in his thought that he took from Comte that actually had anti-liberal uh, um, aspects to them. But he was very worried about them, those elements, and it caused him a lot of anxiety. And he tried to. Um, uh, uh, John, I just have a, a clarifying question. So, as I read it, you're you're saying that you can't zero in on a particular liberal project necessarily, but liberalism is more of a sensibility. No. Is that what you're no, arguing? I'm not, no, I'm not saying that. Uh, so no, what, what is liberalism then? In this, it, it, it's something that, like every other tradition, doesn't have a single identifiable essence. Um, you know. Uh, um, liberal traditions aren't like that, but you can find a few elements in it that persist in most versions of it. Um, I mean, the sense in which Hobbes, let me make it a more precise question, because otherwise I think it's just too imprecise to answer. Um, the uh, uh, Hobbes is a liberal, and he's recognized as a liberal by C.B. McPherson, the Canadian Marxist, by Leo Strauss, the American conservative thinker, or whatever he was, and Michael Oakeshott, the English conservative, he was a liberal, Hobbes was a liberal in the sense that he rejected any uh, 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 claim to, to authority to rule over other people. That wasn't grounded in protecting or enhancing uh, the uh, uh, freedom of uh, individual human beings. So he rejected Plato, he rejected divine right theory of kings, he rejected medieval political thinker. And as time, is a very radical rejection. Uh, in that sense, he was a liberal. Um, so that's kind of one key thing. I mean, someone who thinks... So it's defining it ideationally. Yes. Yeah, so I, I guess I fundamentally dis disagree with that way to do it. I mean, I would call Pobbs at best a proto-liberal. I don't think you could possibly have liberalism right. until the French Revolution. Um, anything before then is just not instantiated. In no, so Locke wasn't a liberal. No, not really. I think... Well, God, you can... I give, a talk, I give a talk at Columbia Political back in the 70s sometime, the last one I ever gave at American University, in which I asked them when liberalism was started. They said, John Rawls. I mean, you're not quite so restrictive as that. But uh, it's... No, I mean, I think it has to be instantiated historically. Otherwise, you're going back to the 13th, yeah. 14th, 14th centuries to find origins no, no, of things not, that, aren't, that don't no, make sense no. when they connect to material reality. No. Well, that's a funny position, but I would I would argue. I think it's a pretty standard position, but okay, please. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I think you can you can identify. Uh, yes, I, mean, I would say that the new historiography on liberalism basically uh, converges on that theory, like Helena Rosenblatt and people in that school right. about liberalism as an early nineteenth century invention. To me, that makes a lot of sense. And people that's when the word started being used. No, no, but it's beyond that because it's basically articulating itself in, in relation to actually living political philosophies that are mm -hmm. instantiated in political movements. Otherwise, you're there's there's no grounding for anything. You're just identifying ideational strands in a fairly random selection of thinkers that happen to be canonized within the Anglo-American Academy. But that's okay. I'm okay with that. But I just want to, as a historian, I disagree no. with that approach. But not everyone has to agree. We're not looking for for for, for uh, consensus yeah, yeah. here. <laughs> I don't agree, but I think we've pursued it as far as we can profitably. So why don't we turn now to your book? Uh, yeah. And so what um, inspired you to write this particular book? What specifically were you reacting to and why this book no. at this time? Well, I guess some of the signs of um, the senility of liberalism as a set of political practices were becoming impossible to ignore. But they'd also been, uh, I noted them in earlier 
writings of mine over a period of about 30 years. So um, uh, I started criticizing uh, Rawlsy and, and Dworkinian and Nozickian liberalism in the early 90s, which is 30 years ago. And uh, I started attacking that strand in liberalism. And I Could argue- you maybe actually specify what, because usually Rawls in the American Academy, Rawls and Nozick are placed in co- contradiction well, to each other. Because the American Academy is very politicized, but that's irrelevant to me. So I'm could, not, you, could you talk yeah. about that, uh, about yeah. what-, what they had in com- Well, they had in common what, what I call a legalist paradigm of liberalism, the one which uh, I referred to earlier when, as Mill not having, which is that they, they wanted to- um, uh, summarize at least certain important and, and encapsulate, and I would say freeze almost certain um, um, key ideas or values or themes in liberalism into a, a body of principles that could be turned into some kind of a constitutional order and then interpreted by courts. They all the, they all have that whatever their whatever their political differences, which to me are minor, minor, um, and I'm not interested in. Um, uh, but they had this common thing in, 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 in this common, common trend. And I argued that that involved a kind of what that would lead to in practice. And this year's a historical, I'll get this 1993, for example, would be that, um, the attempt to, um, formulate these principles and encode them and then put them in a constitution and then interpret them. It would, it would, it would, by it, diminishing the sphere of actual political decision, politicize the legal institutions and the legal institutions would then become political backgrounds. And that has happened. And it was happening for a long time before Trump, but it was a slow process, but it happened in Trump because he then stacked, sacked the Supreme Court in the way that he wanted. And I, th- I actually wrote that I, in the 1993 that I thought that would happen. And it did happen. It took 30 years, but it did happen. So that was one reason I wrote it, which was not to say I was right, but to say, well, here's a, a criticism of a certain type of liberalism. Not a, a kind of strict, not a, not a criticism in terms of, from some ideal standpoint of another theory, but, it, but to, to actually what happens if you try to embody it in practice. It doesn't matter if you're not a libertarian or a Rawlsian egalitarian or some other, or, 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 or Dawkinian egalitarian or something. It doesn't matter what you are. Whatever they, whatever they are, it'll come to this, this result. And I think it has. So that was a kind of to- topical moment. But another reason was a kind of diff- completely different motive that I, had, which really wasn't to do with political philosophy at all, which was boredom with academic texts. Uh, I wanted to um, write something that wasn't an academic text. I've done this before, I should say. I mean, I, but I haven't done a, a, a work which is predominantly political as this was, as a non-academic test, uh, text. And by non-academic text, I didn't mean something with no arguments. There are arguments, there are facts, there are historical analyses. But I mean, something not, not set out in chapters, something which contains stories and vignettes of particular lives, which tries to recover certain thinkers uh, who've been forgotten or lost or even suppressed uh, um, from oblivion and say they, if they have something interesting to say, or even if um, they don't have anything much interesting, but lived at a very interesting time and try to think about that. And so that would have made their thought interesting, even if they weren't that interesting. Um, so I, I want, that's what I want to do. And this, this is why I, why, why, why I did it. And so, um, um, I mean, you have to remember an important point, which is I left academic life. I took early retirement in 2007. That's quite a long time ago. Um, uh, that's, um, um, uh, uh, how many years is that? Um, uh, 16 years, uh, 16 years ago. And one of my reasons for, for, for doing that was, um, um, I thought I'd done what I wanted to do by then in academic life, so I wanted to move on. That was a positive reason. And I wanted I wanted to write for a wider audience than I could do so within, even though my academic position at that time had no teaching and no administration, so all I had to do was research and write. I still had to write within a certain kind of um, discourse and genre, genres, which I felt were limiting, so I left. And uh, I guess this is one of the books that have um, emerged from from that period that I, I wanted to write in a way that um, I thought would interest a certain type of people, but also which which I found interesting myself. And I found the writers I like to read myself are a mix of um, genres or a mix of styles, a mix of, uh, uh, I like Borges, I like Kafka, I like um, uh, Lichtenberg, I like uh, uh, I like Pascal. I mean, they're, they're, they're writers who, um, 
don't write in what has become a, a dominant academic uh, discourse, which is to say to set out a series of propositions, then spend an inordinate length of time saying what they're not saying and caveating what they're saying by reference to other writers. That's like a long CV. I'm not interested in doing that, so I don't do it anymore. And so that's why I wrote the book the way it's written. If you, I mean, that's a separate question. I mean, rather than the content. And so I just have a couple of quick questions. Um, how would you, how would you identify yourself politically, or how would you identify your political transformation over time? Well, I mean, uh, I regard um, this is not a way of not answering your question. I will answer it. I, I regard uh, politics as a, you know a succession of pretty dramatic, radical contingencies. That's to say, now, the, the, the main political evils or difficult uh, problems of one era are not um, the ones that dominate another era. So I don't, in other words, I don't think a project, I don't think a pol- of politics as being that it ought to serve some uh, longstanding or universal project. A very important point. So in that sense, I can't be a liberal, at least as liberals have thought of So, so politics is a series of confronting problems that you address? Not, is it problem, my- not problems. Problems makes it seem that they can be solved. Um, so of, of how would you, what, what term would you use? Politics is confronting humanity and then you deal with that not humanity? humanity. I, no, 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 absolutely not. Because I say in the book in many times, um, I'm, uh, that's exactly the sort of term that, Hobbes deflates in his theory of language. So explain it. What would be the best way well, to understand it? Would always, it would always be, I do share the view that politics is always primarily local, or I don't mean local, I mean a particular time, or I don't mean a city, but I mean it always, it's always bound up in unique historical circumstances. So for example, in the, in the, um, in the, post-cold, in the post-Second World War, which I grew up in, I was born in 1948, there was what I then regarded when I came to self-consciousness in the 60s and, uh, as, a, as a benign political project in, in my country, in Britain, which was a form of um, social democracy, which I thought uh, had much to content, uh, much to um, recommend it, and for which I benefited a lot. Uh, uh, it wouldn't have occurred if there hadn't been the Second World War. If there'd been no Second World War, um, Labour before the Second World War was all, was either out of power all the time or very weak when it was in power. It requ- it required a fundamental change in the political economy of the country, which occurred during the war, in which suddenly thing uh, situ- uh, kind of uh, conditions that were supposed to be impossible, like full employment, suddenly happened overnight. In which the um, um, uh, nutritional well-being of poor children, which was thought to be just a feature of society that would always carry on, was suddenly improved by rationing. Now, I'm not saying that, therefore, that there should be rationing or wars all the time, but it showed the... So that was, a, that was a, uh, I thought, a benign political project. It lasted from 1945, I would say, to the early 70s. And by the early 70s, it was showing many signs of decay. So that, um, if you like, the, um, the, the principal evils that um, that political project addressed, if I can just use that term rather than problems, which were evils of unemployment and malnutrition and undereducation and uh, why the language problems. of evil? Could you just explain that to me? It's me not, I'm it's too not, American. I'm too much of a pragmatist. Why? Why the language of evil? Yeah. Well, yeah. I like the. I, I I'm not a pragmatist. Um, uh, I like the. It, it just means you call it bads. I don't mean, I don't mean any, I mean, people, people sh- shrink, shiver. You don't shock. mean metaphysical. I, I, I understand. Yeah. Yes. Things that are bad. Okay. Things that are bad. People shrink when you use that term, but I'm not, uh, one of those who, uh, thinks that, um, discourse. Well, should... in American political discourse, it's been used to some pretty evil ends. So I think that's probably You've just why. used it. You've just used it. Exactly. Uh, to, to, you've just used it to describe the discourse of evil as evil. It's a very, it's a very American liberal a way of thinking, I think. Oh, I'm not a um, liberal, my friend, but, but yes, that was, that was the joke. That was the joke. <laughs> yeah. But um, um, let's call them bads or evils. It doesn't matter what they're, but they're not problems sure. because problems assume that they could at least in principle be resolved fairly fully. That's never the case. Uh, what these, these bad things can be uh, mitigated and coped with and uh, uh, um, even uh, to some degree, in a limited way, abolished for a particular time, at least partially. They can't; they're not solvable problems. But the key thing is not that. The key thing is that what's a problem in 
what's a dominant or a major problem in one historical circumstance or epoch, even within a single lifetime like mine, could change, change quite radically. So by the by the by the by the seventies, by the mid seventies, certainly that post-war settlement in Britain was to had decayed so much uh, economically and in other ways that there, that there was profound economic and industrial strife and uh, um, uh, the economic model was bankrupt. So something else had to happen. And that's when I started talking about these things. And um, so that's what politics is. If you want to think of it in terms of projects, which I don't, but if you did want to think in terms of you could say that it's a succession of limited and partial projects um, responding to some evils, some of which are universal human evils or bad, and others of which are extremely singularly peculiar to political circumstances. So, so what what one should do in and this is where I guess I'm a pluralist more than I'm a liberal, unlike Berlin, which is that which are the the dominant bads and goods can differ quite quite radically. I mean, take a different kind of different example. I mean, uh, fortunately, I didn't live like this, but I did travel a lot in countries where I I knew a lot of people had. If you lived in Central or Eastern Europe and you were my age now, uh, or, or maybe 10 years ago, you would have lived not through one regime, but three or four, completely different, which had different evils or bads attached to them. You would have lived through a period of Nazism or fascism. You would have lived through a period of weak democracy and collapsing democracy. You would have lived through a period of communism. You, uh, that, that was the, the, the fate, if you like, of hundreds of billions of people for a uh, long period. So the idea that there would be one set of evils or one set of principles that would apply, or one set of one kind of schema of values that would apply to all of that. I think that would find that would be found strange by 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 people in those countries because their experience was that of the evanescence of regimes, which is which by the way is not a, which is not a particularly English speaking experience because neither America hasn't had a conflict of regimes may have now, but but for, since the Civil War in Britain, we haven't had one since the Civil War. Although, of course, there's always been Ireland and there have been places where this is, there's been deep contestation at something close to a sort of kind of civil war. But the, but the, but the, but the radical uh, succession of regimes in the, on the European continent, which is still going on actually to some extent um, in, in, in Ukraine, but also with the rise of the far right in many uh, European countries, that's not a particularly English-speaking experience in the last hundred years, say. So just to clarify then, uh, politics, you understand it as moving with history to somehow address a series of ever-changing bads. Yes. Good. Interesting. Okay. So what went wrong with liberal politics after the end of the Cold War? Well, it became, um, how can I put it? Um, <laughs> it became... Um, deranged from reality. It became um, triumphantly conceited. It lacked any self-critical perspective. Uh, and uh, these were just theoretical well, defects of magazines, <laughs> liberal magazines. They led to policies which were catastrophic. Uh, I was in Washington around about the time that people were neoconservatives and others were thinking of launching the, the Iraq war. I was there. I, I knew them, I talked to them, and um, I thought, and I wrote this, by the way, before the Iraq, I started writing about this in the New States for 2002, which is before the Iraq war itself. I said, this is a completely delusional project from beginning to end. And the delusions weren't, so to speak, random. They didn't just sort of pop up in the minds of a few deranged human beings. They had to do with a certain type of liberal thinking, as it had then become. The type of liberal thinking was basically that... Um, what stood in the way of liberalism was tyranny or dictatorship or totalitarianism. Uh, terms that I think, and I know countless people have said that they don't have any meaning at all, never did. I think they did have meaning in the, most of the 20th century, but they don't have very much meaning now or they have a different meaning. But they thought that if you sweep away tyrants, then some kind of almost a natural order of liberty would assert itself. Um, so how uh, do you reconcile that claim, which I totally agree with, with just the actual yeah. fact that the United States supported so many dictatorships? Um, that was the other side of the Cold War. But the, the reason they supported them wasn't for a realist reason of um, protecting American interests or um, the reasons that were given, which, by the way, I think a lot of people believed in. 
I'm not one of those who think there are these evil people at the top of this who don't believe in anything, random, you know, they're not like that. Well, I mean, they're just I, dumb. They're not evil. <laughs> no, they're not even dumb. They're self-deceiving, which is a completely different thing. Oh, yeah, well, uh, uh. It's a completely different thing. A lot of them are dumb, and a lot of liberals are dumb. Uh, I think the quality of the foreign policy establishment has actually gone down in the last 50 oh, years. I agree with you. I, but I, that's I, a different uh, question, yeah. Uh, I mean, the it, it, people it, do not join the State Department anymore. They go into finance, or, but that's a different question. And that, that's why university education, they all, they all go into finance, I mean, basically. But it's, it's certainly true that there's, I can't think of anyone now, certainly no one active, who had the degree of historical depth and um, capacity for rigorous thought of, say, um, George Kennan. I knew you were going to say Kevin, but even like a, a, a Walt Rostow or someone like that, you know, Maybe, like have yeah. like a historical vision, even though he was profoundly mistaken. You just don't find that today at all. <laughs> Rostow actually read Marx, you know, like none yeah. of these guys actually read anything. Well, then there was, uh, there were whole traditions of um, um, thinking, uh, realist traditions in America and elsewhere. Um, some were religious, some weren't. Uh, though all those traditions, so they've sort of faded away. So the fact that America backed lots of dictators, to me, is significant. I mean, I knew all about that in the Cold War. You have to be stupid not to know about it or uh, ignorant. But the, the basic uh, underlying thinking of the people concerned who were promoting these policies did, especially towards the end of the Cold War and then after the uh, Cold War, did they exemplify these characters? So I'll give you an example of something I observed myself. In the immediate aftermath of, um, I would say, from between about 1989 and 1992, shall we say, 1993, some of the big foundations, mostly conservative, that were backing foreign policy um, research, and, uh, which usually meant endless boring seminars, but anyway, uh, um, cut their funding. And the reason they cut it didn't, wasn't necessary anymore. They'd won. So, you know, it wasn't just a, it wasn't a purely uh, um, um, intellectual error that was made. It, it, it fed directly into policies. And also, Fukuyama, I think, was more of a, um, who I know and I actually quite like as a, as a person. Uh, we had many, many, many debates together in different parts of the world. But uh, he wasn't, he didn't sort of invent all this. He was more of a mouthpiece for it. This was a general mood in Washington and to a much more limited extent in other European capitals and other Western capitals. It was a mood which he gave a, a philosophical gloss to via Kuyev and, uh, and Hegel and, and smattering of Nietzsche. But it, the, mood, the mood wasn't one he invented. He didn't invent a theory which then took everybody in. He expressed a mood which, which articulated what lots of people felt. We've won. Well, it's interesting. I, I actually, I just wrote a very long piece on Fukuyama for the nation and I read everything that he wrote in the first mm -hmm. decade and a half of his career. Uh, and to me, the end that of was history, before you, that, you read the stuff he wrote about South Africa and, uh, and, and, and Rand. Yeah. When he yeah, was a specialist. Yeah, yeah. I know. I've read of, all that too. Yeah. 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 And he's quite so, good. He's quite good then, by the way. <laughs> he's quite, he's quite a good it's writer. Okay. It's, 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 it's quite descriptive, but mm. the interesting thing to, it, it, it's, it's not very analytical. It's very like 1980s political science where a lot of like yes. description. Well, that's what he was then. That's what he was then. He was yeah, a yeah, yeah. He's political scientist. Exactly. And so a, a couple of things about Fukuyama. One, I think the end of history is best understood unless as a philosophical creed de corps and more as a breakup letter to a, an ally that, uh, sorry, an enemy that gave meaning to his life. And then second, I have a question for you. Do you think Fukuyama was wrong? Because the argument that I articulate in my piece is that maybe he was misguided, maybe he was ethically wrong, whatever, but he's kind of right. There have been no ideological challengers to liberalism since uh, basically 1989, everyone's basically now a capitalist um, and there hasn't been that sort of dialectical challenge. So I'm curious what you think of- Well, Hamash aren't capitalists except in their private behavior. Their ideology isn't a capitalist ideology. Uh, no, but China's capitalist, Russia's- I mean, when, no, when no, he that's was- different, That's about, different. I told you start talking about ideologies. If there are, the world is roughly what it was before- the Cold War with new technology. Before the Cold War, before the late 1940s, there were many thinkers in the world who were religious thinkers, nationalist thinkers, um, anti-capitalist status thinkers, what we would now call fascist. It was kind of normal, perfectly normal that that be. And we've gone back to that. The, the, what you say is true in the sense that there are, in terms of economic systems, there are 
essentially only varieties of capitalism, although they they differ very much in 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 in, in the way they in the way they operate. But it's completely false to say that there's. A, a, it's true that there isn't an, a, an alternative. I, mean, I don't take the far right that seriously. I, from what I can tell, you you seem to think, at least in the U.S. context, that the far right is like a serious threat to anything. No, I, I don't. I, I don't think in the far. I in America. I I'm, I don't go to America anymore. Oh, so Central and Eastern Europe, basically. It's definitely a serious. Uh, phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. I, I would. I would agree. And, and West, no, no, Western Europe. It's a so very. It's, it's a, a very. It, it's the biggest. It's the biggest political. The biggest political party in what used to be. Uh, Eastern Germany, the biggest. The AFD? Yes. And, yeah. And, so you and, think that's a real threat and, of overthrowing the Constitution? No, 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 no. That's just a very simple way of putting it, thinking about it. Uh, um, the, make, it uh, make it more complex for me. Yeah. What's the threat? It, what it means is that the part of the policies of the other parties, the so-called center parties, which practically disappeared anyway, but uh, the parties are modeled on those of the far right, and that's a fundamental change. It's a much. It's a much. It's a, it's a very. It's a, you don't need a revolution to produce that. By the way, forty-three percent of the of the French electorate voted for Marine Le Pen before she suddenly became what she now is—a post a post-fascist or whatever it is. Forty-three percent. So, uh, um, well, just a quick clarifying cl- question: Could you could you actually give an example of uh, specifically what you mean about how the AFD has informed German policy uh, and, and a, particularly yes, what is it? Yeah, I, I, I could get. I, I, I certainly can give you a, an example uh, because I've recently talked to people who just come back from Germany, and um, there's a new. Part, <laughs> so, what do they say? They they say uh, um, that it's just a fact. You can look it up on the on the internet. That a new political party of the left is being founded by the partner of Oscar Lafontaine, uh, a very uh, Sarah Wagenheck. That's her name, but anyway, he's a very prominent left-wing, uh, not a centrist, a leftist. And this party is um, not only against the Ukraine war, not only strongly anti-American, it's also strongly anti-immigrant. That's an interesting, and that's partly for electoral reasons. They'll get elected if they take this view, but it's partly because... I mean, uh, that's a trend on the left throughout the world. Basically, we live in a nation state and you have to be protective in order to protect the interests of the working class. It's not something I necessarily agree with, but also, so you think anti-Ukraine is is pro-right wing? No, uh, uh, but it's taken up by, pretty much taken up by the American far right. It's taken up by all the European far, far, far right parties. It's also by the far left. In Britain, the, 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 the most consistent not the most intelligent, but the most consistent opposition to British involvement in Ukraine, which has been quite a deep involvement, has come from the, the remnants of the left of the Labour Party. So I don't. So, so what do you think the importance of Ukraine is? Or, or was, Hewin? Or was? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it was a sign that Russia wasn't uh, over as a global uh, power. Which was to be expected. I mean, wouldn't it be liberal fantasy to think that it would be? No, no, because it, it could have it could have shrunken into uh, it was never going to disappear or become liberal. I mean, I argued that from the late eighties onwards and then early nineties that the idea that it would become a liberal capitalist state was complete nonsense. And yet, by the way, again, this is not an intellectual error because for about ten years, uh, uh, huge amounts of money, huge amounts of advice, huge amounts of worthless or harmful advice were dispensed by the West on how the, the yeah, the, I mean, the West did everything it can to make, to basically engender reaction in, in Europe. If you look at what the West did in, in that, Europe, that I, that I would say was definitely not deliberate. Uh, that was stupidity. <laughs> it was just stupid <laughs> or folly. Uh, but uh, but uh, it wouldn't necessarily follow then that Russia would survive that, and it almost didn't in the Yeltsin period. Actually, that that it would survive that in a country, in a position in which it could it could expand. Or try to expand, and so. But I think the the significance of Ukraine, which is a terrible historical event in many ways, a tragic historical event as well as a criminal one, is that it will leave a kind of black hole in the in in that part of Europe, which is not going to be filled any time that I can see soon. So it'd be like having Syria or even Afghanistan in the middle of Europe. But, so this is my question then. As a critic of liberalism, to me, the, the idea that the, the, the United States could actually just dominate the world now and forever and just per- provide permanent military uh, military aid to Ukraine or to Europe for that matter is an artifact of a basic liberal progressivism that has failed time and again over the second half of the 20th century. So I guess I was just surprised 
I would guess I was just surprised to hear that you were in favor of well, the. Well, it didn't fail for the first. It didn't fail for the thirty first for the first thirty years after the Second World War. It succeeded enormously in both. So until basically, it, a high, heavily tempered social democratic esque yeah. liberalism. Yeah. Uh, and the second that the rate of profit begins to fall in the nineteen seventies, that goes away. I mean, to me, that's not a ringing endorsement of liberalism. But I don't. Well, what know. do you want? What do you want? I mean, uh, you know, uh, all political <laughs> something <regime>. else. <laughs> There isn't anything else. Uh, uh, there are the, the so that's where we disagree. Yeah. So yeah. there's a fatalistic, like, uh, so there's a human nature argument here, right? Embedded in these claims. And that's part of it, but also an argument about historical rever- irreversibility. You know, when people say um, you're a strong critic of American capitalism now, which, which, which I am, and so what do you propose to replace it by? I just laugh. Because the, the defects are so profound and so structural to talk of solutions is just... Um, right, so, so you agree with Marx then. This was Marx's claim in the manifesto. We're in the era of the mutual ruin of the contending classes. Yeah, that would be true, yes. I think I think that would be something, that, a lot of truth in that. Well, I, I mean, I, he, he said if we didn't get communism, we were going to get that. So should we have had communism? What was the alternative? Or was it all inevitable and this is where a species of monkeys is going to wind up? Oh, it might, have been, it might be inevitable. It might be where a particularly clever and particularly um, destructive species is going to get. I leave that open. I'm not concerned to preserve the progressive hope. I have no interest in it, whatever. In fact, I find, except as a, an object of humor and a mockery and a fun. Uh, it provides some entertainment. Uh, that's about it. Uh, I'm more concerned with trying to just sort of speak, identify where we are right now, what people want to do with that um, is some might turn to private life, some might convert to religion, some might imagine that they developed some political project that can transcend these circumstances. That's fine if they think that. Um, um, but that's not my role. So, I mean, the, the prescriptive, heavily prescriptive aspect of uh, political theory is not one I'm, I'm really interested in. So there I would, of course, differ very profoundly from Marx because change the world, not understand it. Uh, is was was his uh, was his idea, but of course I would also be differing from Hobbes because Hobbes also imagined that uh, if his political theory was properly understood by enough people or enough rulers, enough people with them, but then he could. And one of the things I say in the book repeatedly is that um, he was wrong about that. Uh, that um, his what I dislike in Hobbes. I mean, most of it, I a lot of it, I like uh, both the style in which he expresses it and, uh, and the content. But what I dislike it is the um, contractarian liberal rationalism, which is suggests that you get out of these terrible situations by some sort of covenant or promise or some sort of uh, agreement or, or reasoning. Reasoning. I, I can't think of any circumstances in history where that's ever happened. I mean, it's just been proven empirically incorrect over and over again. So yeah. where where do you think we actually stand in 2023? What is your diagnosis of, of, of the moment? If, Who's if, we, though? You mean the West or, or the whole world? <laughs> yeah, the West. I mean, let's say the Anglo-American world. Yeah. Let's say the Anglo... And then, and then how that relates to larger trends. Let's limit it, I guess, to Europe. Europe and America. Europe and America, where we are sitting today, or where well, I in the sit. American case, I think whatever is, I think the outcome of the next presidential election will be very important. But it's very important for for Europe because, with all of its disdain for America, Europe is dependent for its security on the United States. And I think if Trump wins, then that will cease to be the case pretty quickly. So that will but be- why didn't Trump do it in his first term? I'm sorry. I, people say that. I don't see it. I think- uh, Because why, he, why he, lots of reasons he didn't do it in the first He didn't have a cadre. He didn't have a, he, he didn't have, I mean, he had a handful of opportunists around him. He didn't think, think he had no, he had no clear strategy. I think he might have this time. So I think that's, a, but in America, I think the, 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 it will be an important election, but not as important as people think. Because whoever wins, there's a crisis of legitimation, which is now insoluble. That's to say, whoever wins uh, will not be accepted by maybe 25 to a third of the population. So that there is, a, so there'll be a long, it's a long-term, what, uh, long-running crisis of, of um, legitimation from which I don't think there is any exit, at least none I can see for a long time. So that's where we are now. We're going to be stuck in this Groundhog Day, but worse and worse in the sense because the economy will get worse, the uh, 
there'd be various geopolitical problems, not only in the Middle East, but elsewhere. But we'd be, be stuck in that. In Europe... We, sorry, sorry. I just have a question about America. What is your opinion on gerontocracy? Well, um... Because just maybe I could articulate slightly you more. You mean Biden. You mean Biden. I mean Biden. I mean Trump. I mean the entire leadership of both political yeah. parties. I mean the leadership of corporations. I mean the, the entire structure is the baby boom generation mm. doesn't want to retire because they ultimately mm. don't want to die. I, I, and, yeah. and there's quite a big generation. No, they will die, you know. I know, unfortunately. <laughs> no, but, no, um, no, fortunately. But fortunately. The question is about, I know, I was joking. But the, there is the question about generational divide because right. I can see what you're saying. As long right. as we have this gerontocratic structure, nothing's right. going to change. But there, the, the history of the United States is stasis, 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 enormous change in a small amount of time. Stasis, 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 et cetera. I, so why, I don't, why do I don't find, I don't find um, generational analysis that interesting because, for example, in Western... Do you disagree with Karl Mannheim? Yeah, I do. I mean, in, in Western Europe now, the most rapid recruitment and strongest support for the far right is among people under 25 or under 30. Due to economic reasons, though, right? I mean, well, like... No, partly. Well, it was in the 30s. Nazism was partly economic. Uh, yeah, fascism. but centuries of... Yeah, okay, okay, fine. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that the context the, of 30s Germany versus 2020s Europe is quite the, different. The English-speaking world is different from Europe whether it be Eastern or yes, it's quite different. Young people are absolutely not predominantly progressive in, in the American or the British sense in large parts of Europe. And the degree of the trend is the opposite way. So, you know, if you're thinking of the substantive values or policies or projects, it doesn't make, it's just, this is just a particular, 10 years from now, all these people will be dead or in nursing homes. Uh, well, the question maybe, is what's the cause of it, right? If you start giving yeah. people... Yeah. various economic opportunities is that reactionary politics going to remain yeah. maybe maybe it's so embedded by the time they're 23 yeah. but i mean I, i'm ultimately a materialist as you can see and yeah. and and once the economy gets a little less strangled yeah. we might think uh see politics change uh, do you think that's an impossibility no, but I think it's very unlikely because the uh, because the system operates independently of human will. Why do you think that's unlikely? I you know. think forty-year-olds are going to have the same policy no, as eighty? No, 80 because there is, there's too many. There's too much decay. There's too much entropy in the system. Yeah, the institutions. I agree with that. I agree. There's with that. too much entropy, and the, and for a big change to happen, you need either some kind of concerted coalition of groups coming together to produce it, or you need a catastrophe. Yes, here's someone I found an interesting thinker, a very, and writer, and also had a very interesting life. One, very few writers or political theorists have had an as interesting life. Arthur Kersler. If you read what he wrote- God, that failed. <laughs> no, 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 but before that, when he thought it hasn't failed, uh, what he argued about Central Europe was, he argued against meliorism whether of the liberal or of the socialist kind. And he said, basically, you know, to have meliorism, you have to have enough institutions and enough people with, not with the same values or the same goals or anything like that, but with, with ones which are not so divergent and so diametrically opposed that they can agree on piecemeal improvement. And they said that that ceased to be the case, he thought, with the outcome of the First World War in Europe. So the, the only thing that could happen in uh, Central Europe, and this is why he became a communist, um, was uh, a revolution, and it could be a fascist revolution or communist revolution, one or the other, but it had to be a revolution. Now, he then traveled, unlike most political theorists, he went to the Soviet Union, he became a spy for the Soviet Comintern, he, he was arrested in Spain, he was sentenced to death. An hour before, or two hours before he was about to be executed, he was swapped for another prisoner, so he had all kinds of, ex uh, traveled extensively in Nazi Europe, so he knew what he was talking about. But he, he then became one of the very first to say that God had failed in he left the Communist Party in 1938 on the basis of largely of personal travels and experience and, and so on. And in fact, what then was the revolution that changed things in Europe for the better, a part of you, was the Second World War. It wasn't communism, it was the Second World War. And so that sort of leveled physically and in institutional ways, coalitions. and So that enabled something humanly tolerable to come about for a while, at least in in Western Europe. So um, um, I don't think, I mean, I don't envisage uh, if there is a catastrophic war, if the war in uh, the Middle East would escalate, I don't think it looks as if it's doing so yet, but then it almost certainly isn't going to happen in Ukraine, by the way, because what's going to happen in Ukraine is a deal, it's a partition of some kind. I'm sure that's almost certain. Uh, but if there was a catastrophic war, 
then maybe the, the decks could be cleared in America and elsewhere, but that seems unlikely. So I just see what is normal in history, which is a long period of decay and decline. How does climate fit into this analysis? I, well, it's in the book. I mean, um, uh, I have a whole section on climate, uh, which is that- so could you explain for listeners? Yeah. Um, well, A, climate change is real. Uh, B, probably accelerating. It's hard. I'm not a scientist, but I think it probably is. I knew one of the great climate scientists, James Lovelock, closely until his recent death at the age of 103. And he thought that the existing models were uh, wrong, but not because they underestimated climate change, but because they represented it as going more slowly than it probably would. He thought it would go in quantum leaps. There'd be periods in which it wouldn't move and then it would suddenly jump to another stage. That's what he predicted. So not being a scientist, I think that's quite likely that it's, 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 it's a sort of punctuated uh, succession of quantum leaps rather than a gradual increase that can easily be modeled or, or measured. So it's real. And, it, and this episode of climate change is humanly caused. It's a side effect of various human activities, industrialization and, uh, 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 and uh, everything related to it. So it's, it's caused by the last 300 years. And finally, though, there's no, this is where I, where I uh, differ from the, uh, the Green parties and uh, the progressive parties. There isn't an achievable policy or agenda that can be adopted by a variety of states for preventing it or stopping it. After all, if you're a materialist, if you're in the way that um, Lovelock was, for example, you would say that there's an awful lot of climate change built into the material system of the planet now. That's going to happen. Whatever we do, if everybody, if everybody stopped, totally agree. Yes. <laughs> if, if everybody stopped using any fossil fuels tomorrow, which would have cataclysmic effects in the world in places like uh, a lot of regimes would collapse and be replaced probably by even worse ones, Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia and Russia and so on, uh, Venezuela. Uh, but um, uh, if that happened, there would still be an awful lot working its way through the system. And even mitigation might be, I mean, what, what's, what I think we're being forced to uh, towards is a policy of not easy, could even be impossible actually, but of adaptation to a radically different climate coming into being in the whole world in probably quite a short period of time. Short geologically, I mean, it might be a couple of human generations. It isn't very long. So, so you're, you're, you so agree. That's, that's, that's very, that's very real. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that, that we're, we're kind of screwed on that one. So we were about an hour. I'm just wondering, do you have any final things you want to leave listeners with before? <laughs> it's very okay. kind of you to say, to ask. Most of my interviewers aren't generous enough <laughs> to, uh, to do that. So I'm very grateful to you. Um, uh, well, one is, one is, I guess, uh, if they want to read this book, if there's anything that I've said, which leads them to want to read it, it's, it's a book which, um, I guess the central premise, which is not so much a political premise as a, um, uh, I don't know what to call it, an existential premise, is that um, uh, the baseline of human life, um, the default condition of human life, is more regularly and recurrently extreme than we in fortunate liberal societies imagine. So, um, uh, uh, what the book does is look at historical situations and particularly individuals, writers, male and female writers. One of the people I um, discussed was the first um, practicing female um, psychoanalyst in, in Europe uh, um, who had the misfortune of um, living in Europe during the rise of Nazism and then going to the Soviet Union where her work was equally impossible. And eventually she was murdered by the Nazis, actually, when they came into the Soviet Union. She had a terribly tragic life, but also a rather noble one in many ways because she persisted in her, in her goals, in her thinking, and even in trying to practice psychotherapy secretly in the, in the Soviet Union and so on and so on. So to look at various people, not necessarily that well known, who've lived through these um, extreme situations, which I think, as I say, are, are more common and if you like, almost more normal than the the situation in which we've grown accustomed in the last, since the Second World War, and even since the end of the Cold War, in most Western countries, to take as normal and say, how is human life lived in those circumstances? How do people react to it? How do they uh, deal with the fact that they often can't get out of it, although sometimes they attempt to emigrate and so on? And I think that that has a, 
uh, I hope that that has a, an interest, let's say, and a value to, to readers which transcends their political outlooks or opinions or really hasn't got much to do with them. So in that sense, it's almost the book has a, a goal. I wouldn't claim it's a work of art, um, but it has a goal in common with um, novels or, um, uh, or even poetry. Uh, and and it's, it's to try to communicate these these different human experiences, which, as I say, are, are more common, are more, and can happen, <laughs> and can happen, actually, to many people, even in highly developed and relatively intact liberal societies. I mean, after all, there are countless people who have been discarded by the productive process in, uh, uh, in, 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 in Western societies. Uh, and um, that could happen, even if one can, is currently in a, in a decent job and, uh, can somehow afford housing. Um, uh, one, uh, many people could end up like that a few months later in their lives nowadays. So it's intended to sort of speak to that um, sense of insecurity and to try and show that it's not so uh, um, uh, um, uh, historically unprecedented, unique, and that actually people have found ways of coping with it uh, when it happened. So I guess in that sense, it's I'm always accused of being uh, too too pessimistic. I'm nearly always too optimistic, by the way. I mean, I, 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 I did assume for a year or two that people would learn from the Iraq war not to do it again, but they did do it again in Libya. After saying they never would, by the way, it wasn't just me who said they wouldn't do it. They said, we'll never do it again. They did That's exactly. The structure. It's the empire. The empire is going to be an empire, you know. That, but, we're, but it's we're falling almost, apart now, so we're now in a kind of different position. I think, right? that, I think its collapse is greatly exaggerated, but that's a yeah. story for another time. Thank you so much. No, thank you, Danny, for, for, for a good conversation, uh, a vigorous, robust conversation, but a very, a very, a very interesting and enjoyable one. Thank you. And illuminating, and illuminating. Thank you, John. And everyone, please check out again, the name of the book is The New Leviathan's Thoughts After Liberalism.